So Paul is, in the book of Philippians, Paul is seeking, before he gets to Philippi, he's trying to go further into Asia on his second missionary journey, just way reviewed with you. In Acts chapter 16, God says, nope, not going that way, I want you to go the other way. And so he takes this much harder, listen to my words, much harder calling to go to Macedonia. And he has to cross an ocean. He takes his friends, Silas and Timothy and Dr. Luke, and they all end up in the town of Philippi where there is no religious faith of salvation. There's no understanding of Jehovah God. There's not even enough people, Jewish people there, to have a Jewish synagogue where Paul could have a starting place. So he ends up down by the river, which is a custom of the Jews when they didn't have a synagogue. They would walk down to the river on uh, special days, Sabbath days, and they would, they would meet together by the river. And there he meets Lydia, and uh, she's a woman of faith, and he introduces her to Jesus, and she comes to Christ. And a whole church starts out of that little moment right there. It's called the Church at Philippi. And uh, within a few weeks or a few days, Paul's uh, ministering regularly down there. And there's this huge controversy that takes place when this demonic woman's hassling him every day, and he finally just goes, you know, I've had enough of that. And so he uh, blesses the demon right out of her, and then the guy that's using her for money because of the demonic presence in her gets all upset and has a whole big pitch as a united fit and has Paul thrown in the Philippian jail. And uh, there's a good way to, how's your ministry going, Paul? Well, I'm in jail now. Good. Well, good. Good for you. So going really well. But here's the deal. When Paul gets in jail, um, he's able to lead the Philippians. There's this, if you read Acts 16, you'll just be blown away. There's this crazy earthquake that happens that only opens doors and, and chains. Nobody got hurt. Nothing fell on anybody. The town didn't even know it happened. And yet the shaking of this dungeon where Paul was released, set him free and, uh, and freaked out the jailer who was about to take his life. And then Paul... You know, calls to him, hey, we're all here. No need to take your life. Nobody's going anywhere. We're just all freaked out like you, but we know God's at work. Because we were, remember what Paul was doing when the earthquake happened? He was singing praises. In his pain, he was rejoicing and singing praises. And so God is at work in this beautiful beginning of the church at Philippi. You have Lydia being saved. You have probably the girl that he cast the demon out of. Maybe her and her family are saved. You have the Philippian jailer saved, and then Paul's exited out of town on political issues and all kinds of stuff he's taken out. And uh, so there's the start of the church, three little families just trying to work through, you know, how do we do this and how do we grow and how do we build this? And, and it looks like it was born out of turmoil, right? And you would look at Paul's ministry. By the way, if you track Paul's ministry, you go, you know, he never had anything but trouble. <laughs> just one trial after another. It wasn't like there was a lot of smooth sailing for Paul. You don't read that in his ministry. Even when he records his own journey of ministry, he's like, you know, I was a shipwreck one time, and then there was that time they, they, they rushed me out of town. After I was stoned, they put me in a basket and let me down. Then there was that time they beat me and flogged me. Then there was the time the snake bit me. It was all good. And then I was in the Philippian jail. I mean, it was all good. It's all good. Ministry stuff's good, right? So it's an interesting resume that he has. Uh, I read Chuck Swindoll writing about the Apostle Paul says this, Turmoil, difficulty, persecution, and hardship are not essential indicators of being out of God's will. Isn't it funny how we think sometimes when you're in a mess, things are hard and pain is there and it's struggling. You think, well, we must not be in the center of God's will. What did we do wrong? If Paul ever asked that, and I'm sure at times he probably wrestled with God with it, but God said, hey, Paul, just keep on pushing. Keep on doing 
calling, and we'll get through this together. But Swindoll says, on the contrary, there are times those things mean you are in fact in the nucleus of his plan. And uh, it's common saying today, I want you to think about this. There's a few millennials here, and we're going to grow that group here. Gosh, what are we going to do? We're going to reach some of these young families that are going to change the world uh, for for Jesus. We're going to keep reaching out to you guys. Uh, but there's this common saying that's becoming more common among millennials, and uh, and they there's a bunch of studies being done. I read a bunch of studies about it, and it's this. You'll, you'll hear them say it a lot of times, but a lot of the millennials will say this phrase: "Life's well, just too hard." You know what you need to do, and then they come up with some ideas that's outlandish. You know what you need to do. You know what would help that? You know, if you had if you had this or that or whatever, it's some sort of crazy idea. Like, well, we don't have that, so we're going to have to do this the old-fashioned way. You know, with labor. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like when you we got millennials trying to help you dig something, you got shovels, like, you know what? Don't we have a backhoe? Well, no, we actually don't have a backhoe. You know, you can't just, you can't just pop one up out of the you know back of my truck. It's not going to happen. So we're going to shovel till we get to the pipe that's messed up, and then we're going to dig that out. But there's this common theme that runs in our culture right now that some things are just too hard, way too hard. And, you know, we probably need to. <laughs> Rethink that. It's becoming real common. It's impossible. Nobody can work like that. Book of Philippians is written to people who would say that about their faith. You say, well, people don't say that about their faith. Oh, they say it all the time. I would love to have just a $5 bill for any time somebody sat in my office and said, when I'd say, hey, you know, the Bible says you need to love your neighbor. Well, that's just too hard. Okay. I'd be a rich, richer guy. If every time a Christian told me what you're asking, what the Bible's asking me to do is too hard, I'm a thousand percent in agreement with you that it is hard, but not too hard. Because he'll never test us above our ability. He'll never not help us with his spirit and his wisdom and his help to get to where we need to be. And to be obedient is in his will for us. So it's not too hard, it's just hard. It's just hard. And I want you to set your brains into the truth of what Paul's actually saying in the book of Philippians. He's saying you need to have joy in the midst of your suffering and trials. He is chained to a guard. He started the Philippian church in the he started the church at Philippi in the Philippian jail, right? And then a few years later, he's writing back to them. They've got some elders. They've got they've grown. He's writing back to them from a different jail. This one's in Rome. He's chained to a jailer. He's been chained to that jailer for two years. He's under what they call house arrest. He has some liberty, but not much. He's always got a Roman guard with him. He's not allowed to go out and do his little thing and plant churches and all. But he's allowed to do some writing and some communication, and they can come visit him. And while he's chained to that, while he's chained to that jailer, he is seeking to encourage the church at Philippi. And by the way, his future's uncertain. He could literally there could be a knock on his door. Somebody open the door and go, hey, you got papers from the uh, judge's office and you're going to be executed this afternoon about a few hours from now. And that's how Paul's every day, every knock on the door. You know, it might be a visitor, it might be a friend, it might be a letter, it might be an execution order. That's how his day goes. That's crazy to think that your life is just hanging in the balances. There's some court up there working through stuff and you, you know, got Rome kind of frustrated with you, and there's a lot of political pressure about that, and 
You're trying to figure out where you, you know, will I live or die? Well, Paul's caught in the middle of all that. And instead of sitting there worrying and pouting and fretting and fearing and questioning God and all that, he says, I'm going to write a letter to the Philippians. It's going to be all about joy and fearlessness. Stand up for your faith is what he says with lots of courage and be joyful in the midst of your trials. That don't make no sense, does it? No, it makes God sense, not man sense. And Paul's writing from the heart of God. He's literally writing the breathed out words of God to us in his uncertain future. And so there's four points and you see them on your handout from chapter one. And the first one is God's got this. We went over this really strong when I first taught this. God's got this. The second title on your page, you'll see it. Paul says, you've got this. And then the third one, he says, I've got this. Then he says, we've got this. But he starts, very important, that he starts with, we don't have it and you don't have it and I don't have it until God's got it. And he's making crystal clear as you understand where God is in all this. And so in verse 3, if you have your Bibles, please open them to Philippians and uh, just kind of follow along the chapter with me. Some of these verses will be on our screen today, but because we're doing the whole chapter, it might take a minute for us to do it, so we didn't put all the verses up on the screen. Verse 3, though, does say, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Paul writing to them, always offering prayers with joy, there's that word, in every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, for I am confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will perfect it unto the day of Jesus. Now, we taught on this Sunday that we started this, which was back in January. Um, I taught you the theology of joy. And we're going to come back to that in two weeks when we dive into chapter 3. We're going to remind you of the theology of joy because joy is all through the scriptures. It's very important that you understand joy. Uh, the joy of the Lord is my strength. You lack strength in your journey of faith. It's joy that you need. you got to figure out how to get that joy. And we're going to talk a lot about that, but uh, the key that we studied that in, I'll just give you the key today to joy is that you have to be obedient. When you obey the words of Jesus, he builds up your joy. When you're disobedient, you lose joy and you live in misery. And misery doesn't have strength, by the way. Joy has strength. So Paul's actually writing from prison because he was obedient to get himself into prison. He was obedient to the gospel. He's obedient to present the gospel and to share the gospel. We believe he shared the gospel with every poor Roman soldier that was strapped to him. And that poor guy didn't stand a chance. Eventually, he's just coming to Jesus no matter what because Paul's going to wear him down with truth and talk to him about his gods and his foreign gods and their relationships and how there's no forgiveness in any of that. You just got to find you know, the hope was in the cross. And you can imagine Paul just saying, hey, there's no reason to glory except for the cross. Now, come on, dude. You can give your life to Jesus. I won't tell I won't tell your commander, you know. And then he'll go, okay, go get your commander. I'll tell him about Jesus. And Paul would just witness to anybody because he had joy in his heart. And he was being obedient. That's where this joy that he writes from or writes with comes from. And he wants us to understand that we are to keep our joy at the centerpiece of our life and the worst trial you're going through, you can have joy if you're obedient. Now, if you get in that trial and you start fainting from your faith and weaning away from, I don't know if I should, you know, I just don't, I'm not going to, I don't know if I trust God anymore. If you start fainting, now you're getting into a place where you're not going to find joy. You're not going to find it and it's going to feel desperate and you get, it 
It's easy to get lost in that, amen? Easy to get lost in that. And yet here's Paul saying, I am, my prayers are with joy, and here's what I'm 100% sure of. God's got this. He who began the work in you will complete it. You don't have to worry about God, about your, your faith journey. If God really was at the beginning of your faith journey, he's going to work you through that. All the work is his, not yours. He does all the work. He's the one that sends the Holy Spirit into your life when you get saved. He sends you the Holy Spirit to teach you. We said this morning on stage, teach you all things. It says, yeah, the deep things of God. He sends the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's the teacher. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. God gives us all this help on the journey. And actually says we're sealed unto the day of redemption by that same Spirit. He puts the Spirit in us to help us and guide us and teach us these truths. And so Paul's saying, I'm confident. I'm not worried that the Philippian church is going to fail. I'm confident that he who began that work in you will complete it. It's going to be all that God intended, and you're going to be you're going to be all that you need for the Lord. So to experience joy, we have to believe and know that God has got this. If you want to have joy, you've got to get this verse down that says, you know what, no matter what trial I'm in, God's got this. He's got this. It's not going to end bad. So it's going to end the way God wants it to end. And I'm just going to be obedient in the trial so that I can express joy through the trial. And I can teach my friends and my neighbors and my family what it's like to do that. Starting in verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, you've got this. And he's actually complimenting the Philippian church. He's giving them very high compliments. He says, you know what? God's in charge, and he began a good work in you, but I see that work in you, and you've got this. You're doing really well. And so as we studied this section originally, I gave seven signs that you've got this. I'm just going to cover three or four of them today. If, if you've got this grace and this this journey that God's got you on, if you've settled into that, then these are some things that would be true about you. First of all, you're going to be a partaker of grace. You're going to be a partaker of grace. Paul says they've trusted Jesus for their salvation. Uh, for it's only right for me now to feel this way about you. He's writing to them uh, because I have you in my heart and my uh, imprisonment. And in the you, you were there in my imprisonment and in the defense. So they have... The salvation that comes to them, they're partakers of grace, Paul says. They've trusted in him. He, they began the good work. The cross is the best place in the world that says God's got this, by the way. If you don't ever think God's got it, just remind yourself what happened at the cross. Where he said, I got it all. I've got it all covered. It's all covered at the cross. And we'll have a good reminder of that as we take our Lord's Supper this morning. But it all started with grace. We're saved and sanctified by grace and strengthened by grace and sustained by grace. Grace doesn't have any limits. There's no limits to where it can go and who it can help. I've seen grace on death row end of Holman Prison. I've seen grace on foreign mission fields, and I've seen grace right here at this altar. I've seen it in my home. No limit to where God's grace doesn't abundantly pour out on us. Grace has no limitations and it always is available to us. The worst evil person you can imagine, grace is available to him if he will surrender his heart and his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul writes that the Philippian believers are co-participants with him in grace, and he's experiencing that while he's in prison. Why is he experiencing that? Because they stood in his defense. When he went to jail in Rome, they found out he was in jail in Rome, and they sent some, some people to help him. They sent Epaphroditus with money to help Paul, 
And then they sent him just to stay with him. It actually says Epaphroditus stayed till he got real sick. Paul had to send him back. He was so sick. He's like, man, I know you're worried death about you back there. I need to get you back home. So, But they confirmed the gospel. See, when they defended him, they were saying, hey, we believe in what he believes in. We'll stand beside him when he's speaking truth. We're just going to stand beside him. And when they did that, Paul felt the presence of the Holy Spirit in them. What do you say in 7 to 11? I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. I felt the presence of God in that. And I felt you supporting the gospel, which is the most important thing to Jesus. So I felt oneness with you. We were one together. Even though I'm in prison, I feel grace in prison from you because you're praying for me, you're sending help to me, and you're caring for me. See, we're supposed to have a oneness about us. When somebody's down and out, somebody's going through a hard time, you help them. And you pray for them. And when we pray, we're uniting. We're asking God to do a work way beyond us and bring the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life and let them know they're prayed for. So they confirm the gospel. They confirm their defense with him. And that gives Paul evidence that they're filled with the same grace he's walking by. And they're walking by faith. And so he goes, man, you guys got this. Y'all are doing a great job. He also says they were abounding in love. They're already showing, he says, you're abounding in love. You're showing a great amount of love. That word abound means just a ton, a lot of love. You showed love by showing up with money and support. You showed love by remembering and caring for me. Um, You showed love by continuing. And and, and he says in verse 9 that they were abounding. That word means flowing so freely you can't even count how much love there is. And then he compliments their abundant love and he says, your love is filled with knowledge and discernment. It's not just stupid love. You ever seen stupid love? Stupid love is, you know, is that puppy love, goofy thing that's just stupid love. Paul goes, no, your love has knowledge and discernment with it. And, and he says, you're actually, your love is full of integrity. And he says, I pray that your love would be excellent and righteous, your righteousness would increase. And so Paul prays that it will increase in depth and flow. And oh, God would increase the love from this place. We need to love more people right here in Mobile, Alabama. You have neighbors, you have people in your workplace, you have people that you interact with that just need love. Free, grace-based agape. Love that says, I don't need anything back from you. You know, we're doing the laundry love deal, and it's one of those tricky things when you go tell somebody, hey, we want to, you know, we want to pay for your laundry. They think, well, you want something back from them. So, yeah, what I got to fill out, like a, you know, I got to do some sort of survey, or I got to, you know, you're going to track me down or whatever. And you're like, no, no, really. We just want to pay for your laundry, you know. And then you're stuck here because your clothes are there and we're here. And then we get to know you. That's all. There's nothing to it, really. We're not trying to do anything except love you. Well, people get curious about all that, suspicious about all that. But I want God to increase our love. And that's one of our outreach efforts to do that. And then Paul says you're you're approving excellence. It's in the, in the list in verse 7 through 11. You're approving excellence. Go to chapter 4, he says, whatsoever things are good and lovely and pure, whatsoever things are good report, whatsoever things are excellent, he said we should dwell on those things. He's complimenting the Philippians that they're they're already doing that. They're approving the things that are excellent, the things that are uh, God's things. And then he says you're filled with righteousness. Filled with righteousness. Righteousness is the fruit of, of love when you have pure righteousness in you. That's what love looks like and righteousness. Fruit is, is right behavior. It's good attitude and good works toward other people inside and outside the church. Paul says, I see your 
righteousness. I can see it. It's tangible. I ask Christians all the time. I ask our church all the time. Can people see your faith? Was your faith a little secret deal where your Bible's in your car, your truck under your back seat, and then when Sunday church gets here, we pull it out and go to church and we act churchy, and then the rest of the week we don't tell anybody we know Jesus, we love Jesus, we're crazy about what God did for us. Because if it's a secret, you can't see it. And Paul's saying to the Philippian church, God's got this, and I know you've got this because I can see it in your behavior and how you're behaving. And then he knows they're worried about him. Oh, and, and so lastly he says, and also you're just glorifying and praising. You're glorifying and praising God. The purpose of your life is to glorify God. Paul says, I see you glorifying and praising God. And so then he says in verse 12, not only have you got this because God's got it, I've got this. Because he knows they're worried about him. And so he starts this phraseology. Uh, when he starts this uh, verse 12, he says, let me, let me tell you what's happened to me. I'm going to update you. I'm in jail. Got some things happening here. Let me give you a quick update. And it's not, man, these, you know, this, I'm so tired of this chain next to me and, you know, these guards that smell, oh my gosh, they smell like Romans and they just, you know, they talk so bad and dirty and oh my goodness, you know, and I, I'd give anything just to go out and get a hamburger, but no, they got to have all this, you know, cat food this way. You know, I'm just miserable. He's not updating like that. He's in jail. He's, he's got an uncertain future chained to a guard. And here's his update. He says, I've got this. Man, God is large and in charge. What we preached on a few weeks ago, he's large and in charge. He's got it. You guys are doing great. So Paul says, let me just tell you a couple things about me. I've got the assurance of the Holy Spirit's power in my life. I've got the assurance of the Holy Spirit's power in my life. He says, I want you to know, brethren, that uh, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. God's doing the work. I'm chained to a guy, a smelly guy. God's doing the work. It's all good. He just knows that God's got the Holy Spirit's power in him. He's assured of the power of the deliverance. God's going to deliver him one way or the other. By the way, Paul knows there's two exits to prison in Rome. There's two exits. One is, hey, here's your key. I'm going to unlock you. You know, go back. Please don't be a pain anymore. You're free to go. The other one is, hey, we're going to take you out of this little chopping block. Put your head on this. There's a guy going to come by and just whack your head off, and you're still free. Because Paul goes, it doesn't matter whichever way that works. Whichever way that works for me, he knows the Holy Spirit's going to deliver him, and he's seen the evidence of God in his trials. He actually testifies in this section. He says, I see that God is doing these great things. He says that the most of the brethren, verse 14, are trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment. People are getting saved because I'm in prison. So he's got evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, and those people are not afraid to speak. This is important. He says, I see evidence that there's courage among the saints. There's courage among the saints. Courage. Yeah, I think this book is all about courage, fearlessness. Courage and fearlessness. Thank you. And joy. Also, man, I see a lot of courage. Guys that know they could be imprisoned if they speak the gospel, but they're still speaking the gospel. The little church of Philippi could be in huge trouble. Philippi is a Roman colony. You colonize, Rome would colonize these little outlying cities. 
by sending its retired military guys there and giving them land. Go, hey, you want that big 500-acre farm, buddy? Since you're retiring as a military general, I do. There you go. And you and your family raise a whole bunch of family out there. They would do it. They would send dozens and dozens of retired Roman military guys. That's Philippi. So you got all these very powerful, authoritative Roman soldiers roaming around in charge of your town, and you're going to speak the gospel to them? Yep. That's what Philippian church is going to do. We're going to find a way to present the gospel to people that were very anti-Jesus, anti-Jew, anti-God. We're going to find a way to do that. Paul goes, man, I'm seeing God work in your lives with your courage to just speak the truth. When saints show courage to share their faith, doesn't it inspire you? I'm asking, doesn't it inspire you when you see somebody share their faith? Doesn't it? And when saints give up, saints quit trying, doesn't it defeat you and discourage you? Just like me. Saints have to win, right? I'm not saved. Well, I see somebody out there. I don't know. Somebody I know had a testimony, had a walk, and then they just kind of walk away from breaks my heart. takes the wind right out of my sails. And I'm, I'm saying to you, when saints give up and don't fight and, and they don't live the, fight the long, hard battles that Paul's talking about, they get discouraged, it hurts the body of Christ. But Paul's actually saying to the Philippian church, man, I'm seeing your courage. Good job. I'm encouraged while I'm chained to a prisoner or guard. I'm encouraged that you're showing courage. I would love for us to continue to build. You know how you build each other's courage up? You got to share the gospel outside these walls. You got to have the courage to talk the gospel out to somebody. And then come back and just tell us, not bragging. Just tell us, hey, shared, shared my faith the other day with this guy, and here's what happened. Doesn't matter. You don't have to win him to Christ. Just tell us that you did it. And it builds up our faith, doesn't it? Doesn't it build your courage up when that happens? So Paul's saying all of that to say, and look at what he says, verse 18. What then? Only in this, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I, here's the joy, rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Joy, because the gospel goes forth. I don't care if it hurts. I don't care if it's hard. I don't care if it's scary. I don't care if you had to have to muster all your courage up to do it because there was a fearful moment. Paul goes, man, there's joy in that. When you're obedient, there's joy. And then he says, there's a no-loss scenario. For every Christian in this room, you should have courage because you can't lose. You cannot lose by sharing your faith. And that's what Paul says while he's in prison, possibly going to be executed. He says, I know this. It'll turn out for my, uh, this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provisions of the Spirit of Jesus, according to uh, my earnest expectations and hope, that I shall not be put uh, to shame in anything. In other words, I'm not going to renounce my faith no matter what happens, uh, but that with all uh, boldness, Christ shall now as always be exalted in my body, whether I live or die. Paul says, it doesn't matter if I live or die. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. I win. No matter what, I win. If I get to stay with you, if I get to stay here with you, and they, they let me go, we're going to keep playing churches and spreading the gospel. The gospel is going to go forth. If they execute me, I'm a martyr, 
and martyrs seem to have this really cool testimony thing that happens after they're in heaven. There's this following. People go, man, Paul was a great Christian. We should all be, you know, inspired by that. So I get to, I get to inspire people in my death, and the gospel still gets presented, and all these soldiers that saw me preach their preach faith to them and not give it up at the last second with an axe blade in my neck, they're going to go, man, there's something real about that. And there could be soldiers that they're going to lead to Christ. Paul goes, the gospel wins. We win. It's a no-loss scenario for Christians. You can, you can, if you get killed serving the Lord, then you're, it's express lane to Jesus. That's our goal is get to Jesus, right? But you're just in the express lane. If you just keep presenting the gospel and people get saved, then you're doing the work of God. How can you lose? That's what Paul's saying. Is There's, there's a no-loss scenario here, and he's very encouraged by that. So he's saying, God's got this, God. People, God's got this. And I see evidence that God's working through you, how you're ministering to me, how you're ministering in the community. I see evidence of God's working through you. You've got this. And he goes, it's a two-way thing on me. I'm good anyway it goes. Man, the gospel's going to go forth. I'm leading prisoners to Christ, and the prisoners are leading their, their friends to Christ. The whole praetorium, he actually says at one point, the whole praetorium is hearing the gospel because I'm stuck here. Yay. You know, he's like, everything's great. His report isn't, you know, I'm chained to this smelly guy. I'm just miserable. I'll just send some deodorant for this guy, right? You know, to just maybe some washcloth and, you know, bath soap, and I'll try to teach the Romans about bathing. He doesn't go through any of that. You know, he's not worried about him. He's making sure the gospel. So he says, I've got this. Here's what's happened to me. Christ is exalted through Paul's life or his death. In these verses, Paul has a dilemma. When you read this, he has this dilemma. I love this dilemma he's in. He goes, I don't know if I want to stay here and preach the gospel or go to heaven and be with Jesus. Both sound really awesome to me. That's a cool dilemma to have, by the way. That's a really cool dilemma. Serve Jesus here or worship and honor Jesus there. You know, for most of us, our dilemma is, am I going to serve Jesus or am I going to worry about my, am I going to put my career first or my family first or my fun first or my wants first or am I going to serve Jesus? That's a dilemma we find all the time. And Paul is so beyond that. He's like, my whole life is here. Not my I'm not worried about me. I'm not worried about my prison. I'm worried about the gospel. I'm worried about the things of Christ. And I'm going to put Christ first and I'm going to serve him and love him. And his dilemma is, well, do I, want, do I really want to go be with him? Or do I want to stay and help his work down here? Because he really called me to work down here and help him. And it's okay. I'm kind of chained to this guy. And I kind of got a, you know, I'm having a rough time. But he, he goes, either way, I win. The gospel gets to go forth either way. That's the dilemma we should have, by the way. The godly dilemma should be longing to be with Christ or longing to serve Christ in the church and serve Christ in the body. Now, the key to joy, joy is all through this letter. You've got to know that God's got this, verse 6. God's got this. He who began a good work. And then Paul's key to joy here is, he says, the key is, I've got this conviction that I can't lose. You want to have real joy in your life? Just know that you can't lose. You ever play somebody in a sport that you know they're not, they can't lose? They're just giddy about it. I mean, they're like... Now we're having fun. It's fun for them because they're not going to lose. Right? When your faith is that way, 
Mike shared, he just reminded me, which is a real cool story. We had this horrible uh, flag football team when I was growing up as a kid. We were horrible. We, right. we wore these orange jerseys, bright orange, our carpool was bright orange. We wore these bright orange jerseys, and we called ourselves the Orange Crush. And we, I decided the reason we named ourselves that is because every team that played us crushed us. We didn't lose by two touchdowns. We lost by ten touchdowns. I mean, after a while, it's just ridiculous. And we're out there trying as hard as we can, and for some reason, and we had some talent, not much, but we had some talent. We just didn't get it organized well or something. But, I mean, those other teams were, they had Rangers like crazy. You know, that guy had a jersey, man. He's on the track team and sack. You know, I had dogs with you. You know, kind of deal. So, but anyway, we just lost all the game. And people would play us. They're just having a ball. It's just fun for them. And then we're, oh, we're trying to hurt them again. You live your faith out as a no can't lose. So you should have joy. All it should be is like, hey, this is awesome. Can't lose. All I got to do is obey Christ and follow him. He's got this. That's how Paul's heart works and that's what's given him this joy that you'll see all through the evidence of his trial and all the things that happened to him. We need to learn to shine his light out. And so then he concludes chapter 1 with verse 27 through 30 and he says here's, here's this courage that we have. Um, he's really going to talk about our courage and he says, verse 27, this was our vision Sunday in January. We preached this as our vision for this year. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Have a conduct that's worthy of the gospel. So whether I come see you or remain absent, that's just, I don't know what's going to happen. I can hear that you are, what would it mean to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? Here's what I want, Paul says, here's what I want to hear about your church. When I, when I hear about Northside, that you are standing firm in unity. You're holding on to the faith. Don't you waver in your faith. Paul didn't like that at all. People would waver in their faith. He had some things to say in his last letters about guys that wavered in their faith. You know, and I mean, he's pretty strong on that. So he wants you to stand firm. And by the way, that means together. Stand together, not by yourself. You can't be an independent dealer in faith today. You got to have a body around you. You got to have the body of Christ and walk together in unity. Then you need to strive together in unity. Striving together in unity. We talked about these are the standing firm has to do with so it's a soldier term, military term. And the striving term is a wrestler's term. So they're both very strong graphic terms that Paul would have got from being around these big bulky soldiers and all this. He's in Rome where all these Olympic games are and there's all these guys and he's going, man, like a soldier we stand firm. Like a wrestler, we strive together and we do not quit. We strive together in unity. And then he says, with fearlessness. With fearlessness. Notice what he says. That I may hear you're standing firm, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them. So you're not afraid of them. Don't be afraid of the enemy. Stand against the enemy. Paul says stand against the enemy. And I'm saying the capital E. I'm just here to tell you. The capital E enemy, Satan. Okay, capital E. The deceiver. Wants Northside to be done with. He is fighting hard. To stop our ministry efforts from going forward. Everywhere we turn there's some new big crazy trial happening. That I don't understand. And our elders are going, man, what in the world's happening here? But in truth... We're standing with 
and standing firm in the gospel, standing on the word of God, and we're showing courage in the face of our enemies and dissenters, and we're just proving to them that we have courage to keep going. And that's when Paul gives this first command. Now, the whole letter, the, the first command starts in verse 27. Walk. It's in the command tense. You need to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's the command. And I'm saying we, we are to walk in a manner worthy. It actually starts with this word, only. Only walk. That you would walk in a manner. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. That word only in the, in the original language, it was a way that the Greeks would make sure they emphasize this is the number one priority. The number one priority is that you walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Well, what would that look like? I believe chapter 2, the first three verses are tied to the end of chapter 1. I don't think that's a great place for a chapter break. I didn't choose that, but somebody did. And, and uh, But I think he's still talking about the church uh, at, at Philippi when he says you are to conduct yourselves in this way. Here's what it would look like. Here are the marks of faith. The marks of a healthy church is they have an abundance of encouragement, an abundance of love, an abundance of fellowship of the Spirit, an abundance of affection, and an abundance of compassion. They're just overflowing with all that good stuff. Don't you? I'm asking, talking straight to you. Don't you believe Northside's supposed to have an abundance of all that good stuff? We are to have an abundance of that stuff. Affection and compassion and fellowship and love and encouraging one another. When you know somebody discouraged, you gotta get my mama would say, get up in their grits and tell them. Just get up in their grits and tell them. You know, you don't have to be discouraged. You can be encouraged and help them. And that's when Paul gives the second command, which is really a minor command in the in the passage, but it's the second command. It, it, it starts in chapter two, in verse two. Make my joy complete. He's commanding them, I'm the leader, the founder of your church. I'd like you to fill up my joy by having an abundance of encouragement, abundance of love, abundance of fellowship, abundance of affection, abundance of compassion, and unity. I want you to have a unity of mind, a unity of love, a unity of spirit, and a unity of purpose around the gospel. That's what I want you to do. And it would, Paul goes, you know, the founder of your church, guys in jail, you know, guys change the guard. and your spirits are unified and you're saying, hey, whatever it takes, we're going to figure this out. Our, our hearts, our mind, and our love and our spirits are all unified around the gospel and we are not going to be selfless. We're not going to be arrogant. We're not going to be self-centered. We're going to be unified around the word of God and truth. Don't you know the Philippian church was weird? Think about the Philippian church, the church of Philippi. It would have had a bunch of Romans with some Gentiles that were maybe just cultural people, Greeks, cultural people. And then there would have probably been, obviously Lydia and some of the others would have been mixed in with that. So you had some Jewish people. They're all sitting in little small groups together. People that hated each other's culture, hated each other's behaviors, hated each other's heritage, are all bundled up together in one little room around the letter that Paul's writing, around the scriptures of the Old Testament around teachings, and they're saying, hey, what do you think this verse means in Isaiah when it says he was wounded for our transgressions? What does that mean? And some Roman soldier said, oh, man, I'm going to tell you, when you, that was back then, you, no, he was hired military by 
seen. Can't you imagine how weird that is to have all those people in unity? And Paul goes, man, make my joy complete by living in that unity. So we have to work together. The enemy just wants to divide and conquer. That's what he wants to do is divide us up, split us up so we're not unified. We do it over the weirdest of words. And we have to fight for our unity. I'm just encouraging you to, to stick with that. So next week we're going to uh, review the rest of chapter 2. And uh, the center focus of that is going to be on our attitudes. Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And our behavior, because uh, the other command after verse 5, the, the third command in verse 5, the, the last command in that chapter is in verse 12, where he says, you work out your own salvation. We're going to talk about what it means to mine our salvation out. It's already in us. All the workings are in us and all the supplies and tools are there. We just got to mine that out.